Please join me in Daniel chapter 2 as we return to our Wednesday night series through the book of Daniel. This chapter deals with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and his desire for an interpretation. He was troubled, his spirit was troubled at the dream. He couldn't sleep again as a result. So he called for his wise men to come and interpret the dream. Naturally, they say to the king, tell thy servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Well, there's a problem, amen? The king either doesn't remember it or doesn't want to tell him. I'm of the opinion he doesn't remember. And he motivates them by saying, tell me the dream and the interpretation, or else... I'll have you cut in pieces and make your house a dunghill. Long story short, because we're, we're well past this, they obviously can't do this, right? And so the king is very furious. He issues the command for all the wise men of Babylon to be killed. That now includes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Arioch, the head executioner, heads out to gather up the wise men. And he comes to Daniel. And Daniel, remember, he spoke to him with wisdom. And the way that Daniel spoke to Arioch enabled Daniel to get an audience with the king, which is all of God, if you remember us going through that. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar would even allow Arioch to be disobedient to his command and that Arioch would even dare to come in and say, I've got a wise man here that I can tell you. And that Daniel would even come in knowing that he's a dead man walking. And yet, on the other hand, what does he have to lose? <laughs> you might as well, right? So he gets an audience with the king. He says, I can tell you the interpretation. Just give me time. And again, that's, a, that's amazing because the king wouldn't allow the other wise men time. But for whatever reason, God moved in his heart, right? And he was allowed time. Daniel was. He goes back to his house. And he calls his three friends together and they, they pray together for God's mercy that God would reveal this secret unto them and, and give them the interpretation. And, and listen, because God is merciful, because God is merciful, God wanted the dream to be known. And he gives this to Daniel. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to know it. He obviously wants us to know it. It's recorded in the Word of God now. And once it was revealed, the friends are rejoicing at that God would be so good to them and spare their lives. And we covered last time how God is always in complete control. God knows the end from the beginning. God is the one who changes the times and the seasons. And God is the one who removes kings and sets up another. And we often hear about the major power players on the world stage in the news, but God is the one who puts one down and raises up. God is sovereign. God is working His purposes out on the earth. He knows exactly what He's doing. Also remember, this is another trial that's been orchestrated by God given to Daniel. And when we approach trials properly, it will minimize us and it will magnify our God. And so we need to go into trials with the right attitude and heart. Daniel is brought in before the king. The king asked Daniel, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And 
Daniel then proceeded to minimize him, magnify his God. He told the king, your wise men can't reveal. And Daniel was now part of that group. And so Daniel really is including himself. Your wise men cannot do this. I cannot do this in my wisdom. He says, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven that is able to reveal secrets. And we could preach an entire series on that little phrase. But there is a God in heaven. Thank God there is. Amen. Amen. This is why the heavens are on a fixed timetable. The sun's going to rise at the exact time appointed tomorrow morning. It's going to set here in just a little bit at the exact same time they knew five years ago when it was going to set. Isn't that amazing? You can know 30 years from now when the sun's going to rise and set. Why? It's on a fixed timetable. There is a God in heaven. This is why nature does what it's created to do. This is why we have life. This is why we can live this life. This is why we can be blessed and we can have peace. This is why we can deal with the death of a loved one. Because there's a God in heaven. And and that God in heaven said, I want to give you life. How humbling it is to know that the Almighty Creator God wants to have fellowship with you and I. He can do that through the miracle of the new birth. He wants to reign in your life. He wants to bless you with what the world cannot provide. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And when you go to God through Christ's sacrifice, you can experience a peace that passes all understanding. What a blessing the other night to hear Brother Wells say that when the coroner was there. And for that coroner to say, we don't see people react this way. And then Tim was able to give the gospel to one of the men. This is why we can behave this way. Because Jesus provides salvation. And one day we'll all be reunited. Hallelujah. What a blessing to know there's a God in heaven. And if you will get a hold of this truth, if you'll meditate upon it, and if you'll truly believe it and trust God with your life, you will understand what it means to have peace. Well, Daniel goes on to tell the king, But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have, more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. And this brings us to where we left off. And now it's time to discuss the dream and the interpretation. Let's begin tonight. We'll start reading in verse 26 of Daniel chapter 2. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. 
This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, are a king, a king of kings, for God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the earth, over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay." And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof Sure. And may God open our understanding that we may understand the Scriptures. We've already covered most of of what is contained in verses 26 through 30. And there's a couple of statements in verses 28 and 29 that I want to draw our attention to before we move on. Because it sets up the timing of the interpretation of the dream. We see in verse 28 that this dream was given by God to Nebuchadnezzar to show what shall befall in the latter days. Now, I believe the phrase, the latter days, and phrases like it are often misunderstood, and frankly, they're taken out of context. These are those who, who want to group them all together in one time frame when you read a phrase like this. And when this happens, it leads to erroneous teaching, forced suppositions, and so we have to be careful not to force the timing of all these phrases into one period at the end of days, or the last day singular. There's a difference. One letter makes a difference in Scripture. Paul said, not of seeds as of many, but as of one. And so one single letter can make a big difference in Scripture. There are differences. And and the context is key. You hear it all the time, but it really is. The context is the key to understanding a passage. But, But many times, the reference to latter days, the last days in the Old Testament are references to the coming, the first coming of Christ. For example, Jacob in Genesis 49.1, he gathers his 12 sons together and he says, I, I want to tell you what's going to befall you in the last days. 
And the words he says to Judah are these, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is a clear reference to the Messiah. And so when Jacob speaks of the last days, he's bringing them to the time of Christ. And in the New Testament, the last days and the latter days are always in reference to the day in in which we now live. And they had their beginning when Christ first showed up. Hebrews 1 and 1 and 2 makes this abundantly clear. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Somebody said, are we in the last days? Yeah, we're in the last of the last days. Somebody say amen right there. When the last days begin, when Christ showed up. And that's why the Old Testament, almost all the references are pointing to this time of the Messiah. And it's important that we understand this when we consider the interpretation of this dream and the timing of it all, because this interpretation is going to take us into the times of the Messiah. And I'll likely say more about this as we go, especially into other chapters. But let's move on now to the dream itself. We see in verse 31 here, verses 31 through 35, Daniel recites the dream to the king, and he gives the description of it, and we understand from this description that this is an image of a, of a great man. And I didn't have time to put together a PowerPoint tonight. I wanted to do that for this lesson, but you'll forgive me and, and we'll still be friends. So this image, he has a head of fine gold, if you can picture all this, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and his feet were part iron and part clay. But then a stone is seen. And the stone is said to be cut without hands. And the stone, it, it smote the image upon his feet and it broke everything in pieces. And in verse 35, the, the whole image, it, it becomes like chaff. It's so broken that the wind would carry it away and there'd be no place found for what's just been said. And this stone becomes a great mountain and it fills the entire earth. Now, what a blessing that the king got to know his dream, a wicked king. Because of God's people, by the way. He got to know the interpretation of this. He was troubled about it and God was good to a wicked man to to let him know this. But as we read something like this, uh, you know, If only I knew the interpretation. Well, like much of Daniel, God gives us the interpretation. And so many times, just keep reading. And God says, this is what it means. And so we want the interpretation, and in the verses which follow, that's what we give. And listen, it's God who gave it to Daniel. Why is that important? We're not dealing with Daniel's opinion. He's not a psychiatrist on a couch. Or in a chair and they're on a couch. All right, I'm going to give you my opinion. No, look, God gave him the interpretation. So what we are about to cover is from God. And God revealed this secret to him. And and God many times will say, this is what I mean. Even in the Revelation, there'll be some stuff written. And you're like, what? And they'll say, this is the interpretation. And if you're like me, you still go, What? This is why Daniel can be so confident because he knows this is from God. 
He says in verse 36, this is the dream. At the end of verse 45, he says, the dream is certain. This is the uh, interpretation thereof. Or, and the interpretation thereof is sure. Now, the reason I highlight this obvious fact is because it's necessary we we understand we don't need to make more of this than what is plainly stated. I want to give you a little bit of advice for when you study the Word of God that it's been a help to me and I hope it's a help to you. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Don't forget that. Also, don't forget, where the Word of God is silent, we need to learn to be silent. When we're not, we start forcing things to be there that aren't there. So keep that in mind, and we'll move forward. (laughs) Because this will help guard you from saying more than what is said. In verses 37 and 38, we get the interpretation of the head of gold. King Nebuchadnezzar is described as a powerful king with a vast empire. At the end of verse 38, we are plainly told who the starting point of this image is when Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Thou art this head of gold. There's no mistaking this initial interpretation. Daniel makes it abundantly clear, God does through him, that Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. So as we're looking at this image of uh, of this man, this different materials, these metals, the gold is clearly the Babylonian empire. Everybody with me so far? Because this is going to be one of those lessons where I'll let you sleep, okay? I got real good at not waking people up now, so I don't even know why I say that anymore. I'm actually a really sweet pastor nowadays. Um, Where am I at? Oh. So being assured of this starting point, this should not be up for debate. The Scripture is absolutely clear of who the head of gold is. Because we have the luxury of looking backwards over history, we can piece together what follows with great certainty. So as, you know, and and on that note, Daniel doesn't have that certainty that we have at this point. We're going to see in chapter 7, chapter 11, part of chapter 8, that some of these pieces are going to become more clear as Daniel's life goes on. But right now, he just has what I gave you. We can look back and understand what this is saying more in detail. And so we move on to verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. After whom? After the Babylonian Empire, right? Another kingdom would rise to power, but we're told it would be inferior to Babylon. Now, I'm sorry if this seems like I'm talking down to anyone. My intent is never to insult anyone's intelligence. But there are vastly differing interpretations of what we're about to cover. And so I just want to take this a little bit slower. And I'm doing that very purposefully so that we can try to digest this a little bit and we're not just running with something that we've always heard preachers say. All right. So if you know your Bible... And if you know world history, then you understand the kingdom which rose to power after the Babylonians was the Persian Empire, also known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And Babylon was represented by gold. The Persian Empire is represented by silver. And silver is inferior to gold. 
And so this is an empire which is inferior to the Babylonians in that respect, although the Persians had a great deal of money. We'll see that very clearly in chapter 11. But after the Persians conquered the Babylonians, we see in the latter half of verse 39 that a third kingdom is going to arise. It's represented by brass, and it would rule over the whole earth, it says. And this kingdom we know to be the Greek Empire. It began with the conquest of Alexander the Great. Then in verse 40, we see a fourth kingdom would rise, which would be strong as iron. And we know this kingdom to be the Roman Empire. And if you've been with us for any length of time, as I go through books, you've, you've heard me say these things over and over again. Even when we went through Esther, we said it many times. Persians took over the Babylonians, right? And so just, if you get it in your mind as we go through Daniel, because this is going to come up several more times. You've got the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And it's going to come up several times in this book. And so these kingdoms are less in value as far as the, the precious metals go, and, and the metals go here, but there is a progression in strength. And gold is the most valuable, but it's also the weakest of these metals. And iron is the cheapest, but it's the strongest. And the Roman Empire was the most fierce in how they conducted their business. Look, they perfected crucifixion. This was a ruthless people. And other, other nations had done that, but the Romans were not shy about it. And in chapter 7, we're going to see how the Roman Empire is said to be exceeding dreadful. By their great strength, they conquered. Now, up to this point, there isn't much to debate. Almost everyone agrees with what I just said. Except for some outliers, there's always those people that are like, oh yeah, the Messiah is never mentioned in the Old Testament. You know, I always scream, what Bible are you reading, amen, you knucklehead? There's probably some outliers, but up to this point, there's not much up for debate here. And we understand, of course, the, um, what's represented with this gold, silver, brass, and iron. Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome. But when we come to verse 41, there's a great debate as to the interpretation. Is it okay that we're doing Bible study on Bible study night? All right. Because you know I'm in the mood to preach, but I can't. It's, it's at this point here that some will make a leap to what they say is a revised Roman Empire off in the future. And they bring that into their eschatology. And they go on and talk about the ten toes representing a future kingdom. But I want to just ask you tonight, is that really the sense let me give you some things to consider here. While toes are mentioned, ten toes are never mentioned. Now, you might say, well, duh. It's got to be ten toes. No, it really doesn't. The Bible mentions how there was a, a man of great stature from Gath who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each, on each foot. So we're really just making, we're just really making an assumption that there's ten toes. I'm just trying to get you to think, because if you grew up hearing preaching a certain way, then you probably heard more about the ten toes than you did about the stone cut without hands. That's a problem. Since the scriptures are silent on this matter, perhaps we should do the same. 
There's, there's, no, there, there's really no reason at this point to force ten toes. Now, I understand what Revelation 17.2 says. It talks about ten kings. But is Daniel 2 saying that at this point? And I know that many say that there's going to be a revised Roman Empire. These ten kingdoms are going to rise. Just stay with me. Let's try to keep everything in Daniel in its proper context. To make this mean ten kings because of ten toes, which are never mentioned, is to make this passage say something it never says. And so we have to be careful. What do we know from this passage about these toes? We know from verse 41 that they were part iron and part clay. And it tells us this is indicating that the kingdom is becoming divided. Notice in verse 41 that it says, The kingdom shall be divided. But I want you to see that it's a singular kingdom. It is not plural. Which kingdom did we just mention in context? It was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was represented by what? Iron. What are these toes mixed with? Iron and clay. In my mind, it makes perfect sense that we're talking about still the Roman Empire that then was, or that was to come in our day has already happened. Is everybody with me on my thinking? So, it's a singular kingdom. I think that's important. And I I think contextually, this must still be about the fourth kingdom. So, I'm currently of the opinion. I always say currently of the opinion because I'm always open to change. (laughs) I am currently of the opinion that this cannot refer to a fifth empire, as as some say, made up of a ten-nation confederation, or a revised Roman empire that many are teaching today out of Daniel 2. I'm I'm trying to stay in my lane of Daniel 2 right now, okay? So don't get me distracted into other passages. I believe what this is telling us is that the, the mighty Roman empire was going to weaken itself from within. The iron of the fourth kingdom was going to become mixed with clay. They don't mix well. And by this mixing, it was going to weaken the iron. So that, verse 42 states, the kingdom, we're still singular, the kingdom would become partly strong, partly broken. And then we get a further description of this weakening in verse 43. When we read that iron mixed with clay means, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now at this point, you have some going off saying, oh, see, this is angels trying to intermingle with men again. And I don't believe that from Genesis 6 already. You can go back and listen to that message. And so I, I don't go down that road. I don't think that this is what this is saying at all. The, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek empires, listen, this is what you got to understand. They were solidified as distinct empires. When they took over, you conformed. We already saw that in chapter 1. Go get me some captives of the nobles. I want you to put them in a three-year indoctrination program. They're going to learn the language and the ways of the Chaldeans. Why? I'm not going to tolerate having somebody come into this kingdom that's not going to adopt our ways. That's how the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks rolled. You do what we say or else. The Romans had a completely different mindset when it came to empiring. (laughs) What's the word? Ruling. 
They had a whole different... <laughs> we'll make up words if we have to, amen. They had a whole different idea when it came to ruling. Um, we can see this manifested in the Gospels, in fact. We, we see when we come to the, the days of Jesus here on the earth that while Rome was in complete control of Judea, the Romans allowed the children of Israel to have the council, or many of you know it as the Sanhedrin. They were allowed to have that governing body over them religiously. The Romans let them keep their religious identity. What are we seeing over in chapter 1? We're changing your name. We don't want your Hebrew God-honoring names. We want to give you pagan names. And so the Romans were different in that, in that they allowed a little bit of identity amongst all the nations they were conquering. So what was happening in Rome as they kept conquering nations and they kept allowing some of their own identity, it actually weakened the Roman Empire from within. And I believe the toes being mixed with iron and clay is actually after the days of Christ, but before our day. And, and I'll, I'll say a little bit about that here in a minute. Some see the language of verse 43 to mean that marrying took place amongst different nations in order to make alliances, which would hopefully allow people to join together more easily. And that was nothing new. But it didn't always work, did it? We, we, we see with King Solomon... And he decided, I'm going to go off and marry a bunch of strange women. And he, he's got, got all these women that are in places of authority in other countries. But what did it do? It weakened the nation from within. So much so that when Solomon died, right before he died, God said, I'm going to, I'm going to rend the kingdom from you. It's going to be split in two. And the kingdom never recovered. And so it, it, it didn't always work is what I'm saying. And so what's worthy of taking note here about this fourth kingdom is that, listen, the Roman, king, the Roman Empire was never conquered. Did you know that? The Babylonians were conquered, the Persians were conquered, the Greeks were conquered, but Rome was, was never conquered. They just self-imploded. We, it's heartbreaking because we can see similar events unfolding here in America. We're the greatest power on earth. We're iron in the earth. Strong as iron. But we're beginning to self-implode. And what's happening? We are losing our national identity by intermixing with the various seeds of men, if you will. American exceptionalism is dying. That's almost a bad word now. And some of you are old enough to know what that means. We are imploding from within. Our iron is currently being mixed with clay and it's going to make us weak. We're, we're partly broken. We're partly strong. Now what some are saying is that since the first three kingdoms were conquered, it stands to reason that Rome has to be conquered. It hasn't been conquered yet. Ergo, there's going to be a revised Roman Empire that rises. It's going to be ten federated kings. These ten toes that I was talking about, but again, it forces a position that this passage never says. If you look back at verse 34, we can see that there's no reason for the fourth kingdom to be revised in order for it to be conquered. Because we see in verse 34 that the stone cut without hands smote the image upon the feet and it broke them to pieces. And I hope I've shown contextually this 
is still speaking of the old Roman Empire. So my opinion of verses 41 through 43 is this is simply the destruction of the crumbling of the, or excuse me, the description of the crumbling of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. Not some future event still to be fulfilled, which is what a lot are teaching. And I know many in our independent Baptist circles will see it differently, but I personally believe that verses 44 and 45 make it even more clear. Look at what it says. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And of course the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. This is... And, and this is what you got to get. This is the climax of this interpretation. The main things are the plain things. And we have here this stone that's cut without hands. This is where we're meant to really dwell, and I'm going to have to wait till next week to dwell on it. But you either believe that this is the establishment of Christ's kingdom physically in the future, or you believe this is Christ's kingdom already established spiritually. Those are the two general camps. Now, I'm of the latter opinion. At the beginning of verse 44, it says, and in the days of these kings, and right there, we, we need to pause. In the days of these kings, because this is where people all of a sudden go, see, it, it, it is plural. No, 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 we were talking about a kingdom singular. Now we're talking about kings. We're talking about empires. In the days of those kings, which ones? The ones that were just mentioned in context. You with me? And so, are the kings speaking of a revised Roman Empire represented by ten toes, which are never mentioned? Or are the kings speaking of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and, and the Romans? And so, to me, the sense is clear that before these four kingdoms mentioned are extinct, that another perpetual kingdom is going to be established by the God of heaven. In, in Ruth 1.1, we read this. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now this does not mean that there was a famine during each of the judges, but that there was a famine during the time of the judges. You with me? It's the same language here in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Before the last empire passes away, there's going to be another kingdom that is vastly superior to the four preceding kingdoms that were established. This kingdom is going to be so great because it was, it's going to be established by God. Amen. It's never going to be destroyed. It's not going to be left to another people. The, the four empires, they were destroyed. They were left to other people. But this kingdom of God is going to stand forever. And so what you have to decide for yourself as we come to this interpretation is whether this kingdom is the future physical kingdom upon this earth during the millennial reign of Christ or if this is at this point speaking of a spiritual kingdom established at Christ's first appearing. I think verse 45 helps with the answer. For as much as thou sawest the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. 
I think this is important. Because did the stone break in pieces the iron kingdom only? No. It breaks in pieces the whole thing. You catching that? It's, it's the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold. It broke in pieces the, the empire system of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and we've never seen anything like it since. You say, well, what about the British Empire? It wasn't anything like these empires. It wasn't all together. It was all kind of spread out. So if one is going to try and make this say that Christ's kingdom is going to break in pieces a ten-king federation of a revised Roman Empire in the future, then wouldn't they also have to be honest with the Scriptures and suggest that there would also have to be a revised Persian, Greek, Babylonian Empire? Because what is the stone doing? It's destroying all of it. Are you with me? Are you connecting the dots on what I'm saying? If we're going to say, well, it's breaking iron, it's got to revise a kingdom because the Roman Empire was never conquered, then it's going to have to be a revised Greek, Persian, and Babylonian as well because the same metals are referred to as being broken. Well, this is as dry as I thought it would be. (laughs) We're out of time. I'm going to show you next time that we meet together in Daniel 2 how Jesus' first coming will perfectly fit what is being said here in chapter 2. And spoiler alert, when we get to chapter 7, it's going to be a little bit different when we come to this particular section. And so again, I'm trying to stay in in my lane of chapter 2. When we get to chapter 7, I'll explain. And so keep this in mind until next time. The fourth kingdom of the Romans were ruling when the angel Gabriel appeared to a young virgin woman named Mary in Galilee in a city called Nazareth. Listen to what he said to her in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Listen now. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Listen, it was understood even by Herod. Or, excuse me, it was understood even by the wise men who came to Herod. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, I know I didn't get to challenge you tonight like I normally would like to do out of the Scriptures. I feel like that's my job. But we can say we studied the Bible anyway. I want you to know this. Not everything in the Bible is made plain and not everything is worthy of dividing over. You say, what is made plain? The way of salvation. That is absolutely clear. We cannot argue the fact salvation is through Christ alone. And the most important thing in this dream is how God's kingdom will prevail. It's going to endure forever because Christ, our stone, is far more powerful than any kingdom upon this earth. So in closing, I just want to tell you again this week, let not your heart be troubled. Our God is in complete control. God controlled the rise and fall of these four empires. He's still going to be in control when the seventh angel sounds and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. We have nothing to fear as children of God. We're in God's hand. Let's pray.